Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The data right now is sub 2% to be polite. It may be a lot worse than that. And of course, Home Depot uh, guides to that. The president would like something better. He tweets overnight. At my meeting with Jay Powell this morning, I protested the fact that our Fed rate is too high relative to the interest rates of other competitor countries. In fact, our rate should be lower than all others. Too strong a dollar hurting manufacturers and growth. And then Powell turned and said, well, I'm going to blame it on Jim Karen." <laughs> and he joins us now. Morgan Stanley Investment Management Fixed Income Portfolio Manager. Jim, your thoughts on the president pushing back against the chairman of the Federal Reserve? Well, look, I mean, you know, I, I think uh, Trump, it's no secret he wants a, a weaker dollar, and, and he thinks that interest rates are the way to do it. What I think is being misunderstood in the whole conversation is effectively that the interest rate is really just one piece of the puzzle, right? So we have to really think about financial conditions. When we look at interest rates and we say, is this the right interest rate for the U.S. economy? We have to look at what equities are doing. We have to look at what credit spreads are doing. We have to look at what other. Oh yeah, you know, this I'm sure is what doing. President Trump is thinking well, about and saying. It's, and it's, I, and what was his point in having? Jay Powell come? Well, I, you know, look, I, I don't know. It was, it was a surprise meeting, but let's think about the people who were there, right? So you had Jay Powell, you had the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, right? So you've got the person who sets the interest rate, and then you've got the person, which is, you know, the Treasury, who can actually affect dollar policy. So my guess is that the behind-the-scenes conversation was, how can you two guys work together to get the dollar weaker? Now, that's just conjecture. I don't know. I wasn't there. But it would seem that that would be consistent with what Trump has been trying to do for a period of time. And what and what the Fed is saying is completely appropriate, in my opinion, which is that you have to look at rates relative to other assets. If you push rates down too much, you're going to get an equity bubble. Is that what you want? You know, could that create a bigger crash down, you know, down the line or a bigger, you know, decline down the line? We don't want that. We want stability. And I think that's what the that's where the Fed is coming out on this whole thing. But look, you know, have you ever met a real estate guy that ever thought that interest rates were too, you know, you know, were too low? I mean, they always want rates low. So I think that's where um, I think that's where Trump is coming out on the whole thing, and he's trying to get Mnuchin to work with it. But look, I, I think this is really just um, you know the dollar is going to move through global growth and expectations and other things. It's bigger than just what Jay Powell can do. But let's be fair, Jim, it also moves on rate differentials. We sure. all get taught that FX one I want rate differentials, rate differentials. The Fed funds rate one seventy five, yeah. the policy rate, the depot rate now at the ECB negative fifty basis points. Yeah. You can make the argument that if the Fed looked at the rest of the world and wanted a weaker dollar, they can do that through rates. Sure, yeah. I understand the broader considerations, but the president's point on a stronger dollar and rate differentials does stand. It, it, it does stand, right. It, 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 does, it does hold water in, in that principle that you could push rates lower to the extent that you could weaken the dollar. But the, the thing is, is we have to look at collateral damage. Yes, you could do that. And I think yeah. the argument back from the Fed is, of course, we could do that. Interest rate differentials do matter. But then what other damage do you create later on? So let's say, for example, we get the first impulse, the dollar gets weaker, global growth gets a little bit better, everything is fine. But then you create uh, an asset bubble in a lot of other places, could be housing, could be equities, could be other areas. Then the economy slows dramatically. The dollar, and if the and if global growth slows dramatically at the same time, the dollar is actually going to appreciate by even more. So the argument could be that look, you know, we are trying to get the dollar a bit weaker. We understand the view, but it's going to be a very very slow process. Please have patience. This very conversation underlying underlining the need to have Federal Reserve 
independence. As a house, though, Morgan Stanley been calling for a weaker dollar for quite a while, yeah. Jim. Still yeah. calling for a weaker dollar. What's driving it? Yeah, so look, it's it's my good friend Hans Redeker, who I think is one of the best in the in the business as an FX strategist. And you know, his, his idea behind the whole thing is is it's really about the fiscal. It's really about debt and supply of of, of U.S. Treasuries and, and a fiscal deficit. And ultimately, what what his belief is is that as the U.S. takes on more and more debt, the debt to GDP rises. At some point, there has to be an adjustment with the rest of the world, and that is probably going to come in the form of a of a currency devaluation. Perfect logical. Yesterday, uh, there were some calls out of your house about the cracks in credit, in particular, lower rated credit. And people have been expecting this for a long time. We've seen those cracks. What would make you more bullish? So look, I mean, for, for me, and, and I understand that if you look, for example, at the high yield markets, right? You look at single Bs and triple Cs, and they have severely, severely underperformed the double B segment of, of the high yield market. So the lower quality credits, for example, all across the spectrum have done a lot worse. Now, why is that? The reason why that is, is because of cyclical parts of the market right now, more of the industrials, more of the chemicals, the materials, all these other manufacturing, look at what the ISMs have done, which have done very, very poorly, have given a read through to the market over the next six to 12 months that earnings are going to be weak in those sectors. Now, listen to what I'm saying, which is something very, very different, which is I think that we're going to get a mini cyclical recovery and that those unloved sectors could actually do better. So so what would change is if you do get this cyclical recovery, you get ISMs back above 50, which I think is very, very doable over the next couple of months, mm-hmm. PMIs back there, then you're going to get those cyclicals, chemicals in particular as a sector could do extraordinarily well. So I would take um, from an investor's perspective, I'm I'm going to say a lot of bad stuff is in the price. Am I buying this at the right, right price to take this bet? If you get marginally higher interest rates, does that marginally bring the PE multiple in over in the stock world with Mike Wilson? Well, it, you know, it, it depends on why rates are going up. So if we, we have to go back to 1996 to think about this, Tom, right? So so the last That's, time... I don't remember back that far. You were five years old at, um, at the time. But, but, the, uh, but no, but look, I mean, in 1996, 1995, the, the Fed went through a mid-cycle reset where they hiked rates 300 basis points in 1994. And through 95 into January of 96, they cut rates as an insurance cut. For um, you know, for, you know, for the markets three times, so they cut by 75 basis points. What followed was higher yields, a steeper yield curve, a better equity market, um, a better tighter, equity market, tighter credit spreads. Right, exactly. So effectively, what you can get when you when you place this big insurance um, premium out there yeah. by cutting rates, and you don't get the recession, then what you've ended up doing is bolstering the economy for the next so part of the cycle. So my log extrapolation on Dow 30,000 is September 20th at 10 p.m. next year. Okay. Is it, can you go with me on that? <laughs> yeah, look, I'm optimistic, okay? Um, I, you know, at this point, again, looking at cash yeah. flows, looking at how I discount cash flows, it, it seems You're digging it a grave here. Just get away. <laughs> Le- leave while you're ahead, Jim Karen. Thank, thank you thanks. so much, thank Morgan you. Stanley. Greatly uh, appreciate it. We are here knowing that the three of us have not been in a Home Depot in what, eight months? 
nine months speak for months. yourself there's one downstairs i know it's and downstairs i but, you know. fixed my own door hinge why you you I just, yeah, I did just, you go in i did go in i bought a hinge i brought my old one Good and for i you, fixed Lisa. it i just want to put that Good out you there. Use a, a drill and all that you no know, i used a manual you're just trying to drag us down with you into your elitist Seriously? world expert, where you don't visit home depot Come expert on. on this is sarah halsick who joins us now from bloomberg she knows the difference between cabinet grade plywood panel at 35 dollars 36 aboard uh, versus the garbage stuff I buy. She knows that every day. Uh, uh, Sarah, Home Depot, is it about the traditional Home Depot stuff we think about or are there challenges like a new project that's not working out? Yeah, so what they called out in the press release was that this initiative they have called One Home Depot, that, progress, that? Is, <laughs> progress is moving slower on it than they thought. So essentially, this is their name for their long-term strategic plan to kind of bridge uh, the physical stores and the online stores, that for a long time, uh, those businesses had existed in separate silos, and that they need to break that down, both from a consumer-facing perspective and behind the scenes. So they've been doing a lot of work to make sure the IT and supply chain is more seamless between those two things and that it's easier for customers to ping-pong back and forth between browsing online and coming to the store to buy something or perhaps doing something like buy online, pick up in store. And so uh, this was unusual for Home Depot. You know, this has been a retailer that is just remarkably consistent over the last several years despite these retail apocalypse conditions. And here they were uh, essentially conceding that, that they had missed yeah. the mark a bit. I mean, John, I never knew this. You can buy quarter-inch t- quarter premium Baltic birch plywood from Amazon. Who would have thunk? Who would have thought? Who would have thought? So, Sarah, whenever anything over-delivers or under-delivers, I always ask the question, is it execution or a lack of execution or the broader market? Which one is it? It appears to be lack of execution, and I think we're going to get more detail from them on their call at 9 o'clock. The press release was very vague, just saying that, you know, the pace of this uh, strategic plan was not what they expected it to be. But we know that the consumer is in pretty good shape right now. We saw really strong results from Walmart last week, and we saw a color from their uh, senior executive saying, yeah, consumers seem to be in good shape. And so uh, I don't think that should be be able to be a call-out for them. The other thing is, you know, we had heard earlier from them this year about uh, concerns about the macro environment. They had taken their guidance down by 20 basis points. They said just conservatism around tariffs and then yeah. a few more basis points around lumber deflation. We didn't hear that today. We just heard, just heard the execution call out. Uh, Lisa, if you get the hardcover copy, it's fabulous. Boat building with plywood, Glenn Witt. <laughs> Superb book. Thank you. I, I'm Loves still. I'm, I'm and still, I went to Home Depot for that. I didn't go to Amazon. For oh, is that is that so? You know, I'm still book. thinking about one Home Depot. I'm picturing. It's out there in the Hudson River. Yeah, <laughs> trust falls with senior executives. I do have to wonder though, uh, going forward, Sarah Halzak, um, the whole idea of execution at a time of tariffs and trade wars, etc. How much is that uncertainty affecting the business versus perhaps not as robust a housing market as people had expected? Because we are seeing uh, some persistent pockets of, of weakening. Yeah, I would expect that the housing market is playing more a role than tariffs at this point, because especially a retailer as large as Home Depot, they have such uh, negotiating power with their suppliers and vendors that uh, they should be able to sort of shoulder uh, those burdens a little more easily than a a medium or small retailer. I think the other thing that will be interesting to see tomorrow when Lowe's reports is if perhaps there's some additional competitive pressure going on here. Uh, Lowe's has for the last several years kind of been the bridesmaid to Home Depot. Uh, It is 
always done well, but not quite as well as Home Depot. They have a new CEO who has a new uh, turnaround plan in place for that company. Um, and there's been some discussion that perhaps uh, that is starting to bear fruit. And so if we see Lowe's ramping up its comps tomorrow, uh, that could be an indication that that's well, some of what's going on with Home Depot this morning as well. Sarah, thank you so much. Thanks, I'm Home Sarah. Depot. I really appreciate it. This is an absolute joy. Usually we're hearing from her from New Orleans, Washington, wherever she is. Henrietta Trez darkens the door with Veda Partners. And I, I want to get in a moment here, John, to the really the topic at hand, Hong Kong. I have to ask you for all of our global Wall Street audience, and particularly those older, you had the immense privilege out of school of working for Zweig Demena. What was it like having Marty Zweig Darp, the giant, Marty Zweig, darken the door every once in a while. It, it was amazing. It was such an honor to be able to be in that office and learn so much from the great folks there. Did he ever say to you, don't fight the Fed? He never did. No, those, <laughs> yeah. those words never came out. But um, I, I feel like that's something that I would have heard. Very cool. What, what, what did you learn there about investment and pulling it over to your world you're in right now? I'd pay attention to the details. That details, was the most yeah. important thing. And nothing is too small to overlook. Yeah. Right now, there's a small overlook, John, and it's called Hong Kong. And Congress is looking at it. Well, let's talk about the details. The bill has already gone through the House. A different bill, slightly different bill, is about to go to, through the Senate. Could pass as soon as today. Talk to us about today? the content. Oh. Talk to us about the content of that bill, Henrietta, and what it could mean. The content of the bill is a part of the problem. Um, obviously, it aims to make sure that Hong Kong has uh, autonomy in China. But the biggest issue that I have with it is that China, even though, as you mentioned, the House bill was watered down substantially and allowed for the White House and the president specifically to override any decision or determination that the State Department or the House or the Senate made about the autonomy and the uh, ability of Hong Kong to be independent and receive preferential trade status, Beijing responded very negatively to the fact that we even held the vote and has been very clear that a Senate vote would be extraordinarily problematic, meddling in their independence. And I think even the vote itself is a problem, let alone passing it. It could happen today. I emphasize it could happen today. Let's talk about where it would leave the President of the United States, who at the moment is trying to negotiate a trade truce. Right. I mean, I think the biggest thing we need to focus on is the fact that the trade truce has not come together. We are, as you mentioned before, on week six. It was supposed to be three to five weeks. I think we're in arguably already a delay phase. Uh, and I don't know that phase one is necessarily going to come. I think a vote on the Rubio legislation would be a very real risk to China continuing to stay at the negotiating table. I think that they need to buy pork. They need to buy protein from us right now. And so it's this unique little window of time where everybody can get along. But uh, it's pretty heavily problematic to even have the vote. To be clear here, Henrietta, even if the president vetoes this, which he may well veto it, and if it passes the Senate, it's still got to go back to the House and pass again, which could take another few weeks because of the Thanksgiving recess. But even if the president vetoes it, you think this could upset the Chinese enough that it just passes the Senate and they could walk away from the negotiating table? Just having the vote is extraordinarily problematic because of the optics. Um, the bill obviously will not pass immediately. It doesn't become law and it gives the State Department a year to do these audits. So it's not an immediate ramification that China then has to accept or tolerate with regards to Hong Kong and their trade relationship there. Um, it's not like the Section 301 tariffs would immediately apply to China, but it is the optics that I think China most aggressively opposes. Well, if you take a step forward and just sort of extrapolate out if the escalation in Hong Kong continues, 
What is the impact on trade negotiations that could be potentially detrimental in a way that markets are not pricing in right now? I think it's really the uh, pressure that the senators and lawmakers in the House and outside external forces, kind of like what we saw with the NBA, the longer you have this tension brewing in Hong Kong and the threat of China stepping in in a more aggressive fashion makes it impossible for lawmakers to stay silent. And that silence is what allows for the president to remain silent and the domino effect of that is really the biggest problem. All of the trade war is so heavily about optics and about, especially in China, about face. And I think having even the vote uh, and the messaging is a huge risk, probably the biggest risk. We were actually in London last week meeting with clients and they woke up and said, you know, the first thing I look up in the morning is not the Fed. We don't care about interest rates right now. It's what's going on in Hong Kong. Are they going to escalate? If they do, what does the United States feel pressure to do? And do I think you that's think, Henrietta, the threat of a more aggressive Congress is actually tempering China's response to what is happening in Hong Kong at the moment? It's a good question. I mean, possibly, I wouldn't say that our senators are the most impactful thing in the world to them, but I think they know that there's a fine line. I also think that the unrest has the potential to be a positive for President Xi as he is able to illustrate, you know, this is the United States or other countries trying to meddle in our sovereignty. Yeah. Certainly you don't support that. you got to support me. You mentioned the MBN. I actually think that's one of the most interesting developments of the last couple of months, and I'll tell you why. I believe that multinational companies are really going to struggle in the coming decade to please a progressive base at home in countries like the United States and maintain a presence in repressive states, repressive countries like China. Where do you think that is heading, Henrietta? It's, that's a fantastic question. I've just been having conversations about that with staff. They're all thinking about how are we going to be able to regulate or um, keep these multinationals, particularly on the Republican side, from getting too aggressive on things like China, of course, but also climate change or any of this proactive stuff that's being driven by either the shareholders or the consumers or the purchasers of their products. And it's something that they are hoping the multinationals don't get too ahead on, but the multinationals clearly feel pressure to, to act regardless of legislation. What will Xi Jinping do with that power if he gets it, if it does solidify due to what we're seeing in Hong Kong? Uh, I mean, I think President Xi is doing exactly what he would like to do, which is advance his own platform in China, uh, is solidifying support domestically, um, continuing to act in a really assertive fashion on a global stage, get involved with the EU, get involved with Italy, get involved with the Czech Republic, um, and make as much headway on the global stage for his own um, advancement of China, which is, in my opinion, their long-term goal. What is the linkage right now with your expertise, Henrietta, of Capitol Hill with the Pentagon? The president's relationship with the Pentagon is extraordinary. Witness the war crime uproar over the weekend, the pardons. But what is the relationship of Senate leadership and House leadership with the Pentagon? Are they remotely on the same page? I think that the loss of General Mattis was a pretty big deal in connecting the Capitol to um, that side of the federal government. Um, One of the more interesting developments is the entities list that we and the export control restrictions that we're working on, which I understand is being driven largely by the State Department, by Pentagon, by CFIUS, by Treasury, and the military aspects of restricting Mm -hmm. trade with China is something that lawmakers on Capitol Hill are very supportive of. Indeed, there was a bill introduced yesterday um, to try to get more clarity on what those agencies, what the Pentagon is doing in order to so advance that. You said, John, we may get a vote today. Is that the, the possibly, yeah, quite Bloomberg possibly, Washington? yeah. 
What happens after the vote? I mean, can you guesstimate out the response of China to that moment that John mentions? I mean, what we've seen so far is they issue very public rebukes, strongly condemning the move, calling the United States arrogant, um, meddling. And I think that in turn advances uh, President Xi's ability to say, look, we're not going to deal with the United States. They're the aggressor. It makes it incumbent upon the White House to take more of their tariffs off and generally complicates the work of USDR Lighthizer. Henry, just to wrap this all up, just shortly, what do you think the chances of a short-term truce are in the next uh, month or so? I think there's a 55% chance we either delay into the end of this year or maybe even to the first quarter of next year and or get a phase one deal done that will be very small. With 45% odds, we expect that there will be more tariffs. And for me, that's pretty bullish. That's, that's pretty optimistic for me. <laughs> Henrietta, great to catch up with you. Henrietta Trace there. Veda Partners you. in New York. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And there is a line in the sand here for this phase one negotiation process, Tom. And that phase one negotiated yeah, process and- line in the sand is December 15th. If you are a value investor, if you are someone waiting for the great shift away from the seven stocks that are moonshots, this is without question the interview of the day. David Harrow is with Oakmark and Harris Associates. He has had an absolutely exquisite track record, including in the last three months in the 99th percentile. That's pretty good, except it's been a real slog for the last couple of years. David, to cut to the chase, is value finally back in vogue? And can the international shift that's a glimmer now, can it sustain over the next 24 months? I don't think, good morning, Tom, by the way. I can't believe you haven't mentioned the Green Bay Packers being eight and two, but we'll forget about that. We'll get there. Give him 30 seconds, come on. (laughs) You're just wetting his Um, appetite. Anyway, you know, I think this is, a very early stage of a value recovery. Uh, Clearly what we've seen over almost the better part of a decade is a huge separation between, you know, what is known as growth stocks, momentum stocks, and value. And we've seen a couple, at least a couple standard deviations. You've seen huge differentials in valuations of the businesses. And now in the last couple of months, we've seen, you know, the curves narrow a, a slightly little bit. And I think Given where valuation differentials still exist today and past price performance, we're like in the second or first inning of what I think should be more realistic prices of equities around the globe. Okay, but what does that mean? What it means is you're going to see at some point over the next few years, convergence in valuations. Whereas over the last five, six, seven or eight, you've seen just the opposite. You've seen valuations drift apart between various sectors. Think of a barbell or an hourglass. You had extremely heavy weighted valuations in, in staples and in uh, uh, healthcare stocks and utilities, et cetera. And you had very, very low valuations in consumer discretionary financials, et cetera. So does this I'm mean- not saying they should trade at a premium to, to the expensive sectors, but the differential was just way too large. So does that mean that you're going to see tech sell off and you're going to see, uh, say, industrials outperform? 
I think what you're going to see is companies that have decent cash flow streams that trade at very, very low valuations with good dividend yields and efficient cash generation will be revalued. And those companies, which you are paying, in some cases like a Tesla, an infinite price for the cash flow streams because there's zero free cash flow and it has a, what, 60 or 70 billion enterprise value. Companies like that and other companies that cannot justify the price you're paying for a stream of cash will come down. Yeah. David, in the time we've got left, please speak on the European banks. What an ugly setup it is. You're not a Deutsche Bank, are you? You're smarter than that? <laughs> I don't know if it's smarter luck, but no, we're not in no. Deutsche Bank. We're not in Deutsche Bank because it was just the argument I'd make for not being in it is the yeah. business that makes money is not very transparent and where they should be making money in their yeah. home German retail market, they don't make any money. So why we invest in that company when there's quality banks like BNP and Tesla and, and Lloyd's, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. Green Bay Packers, eight and two. Aaron Rodgers, is, is, is he too old to move this thing forward? I mean, you know. No, but it? they have to protect him. You know, in the games yeah. where they didn't look so good, he was under pressure. And the defense doesn't look quite as like an 8-2 and two team. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they're not on the edge of being as good as the Patriots, right? I don't think so. And they're going to have a fight against the Vikings in December. See that? See that? That's football talk, John. That's American football Leading talk. the NFC North. Fantastic. Oh, yeah, top of the Vikings at the moment. Yeah. Eight and two, David Harrow. David Harrow, thank you so much. I read much. in for David Harrow. I do all the European bank stuff, and then Did I, you? you know, just check where the Packers are. David Harrow, just Volkmark, to make sure. Thank you so much. It's he's had a really long patience, and we should point out, you know, by by prospectus, he blows up about every six years. I mean, it just doesn't work, and then it works like a charm. And he's got some terrific tracker there. A lot of people well. coming to him yes. over the last couple of months. Let's be, sure. Let's be clear about that. Yeah. Yeah. His view is a little lonely for a while. A lot of people Way are starting lonely. to join him. He and is not lonely anymore. To me, to me, to your point, and this I think is critical with the year view forward, this is maybe the call of the year if you get the international call right. I'm not going to suggest what it should be. But it's a huge deal. We have had a massive move off the August lows. If you look at the banks listed on the stock 600, we've yeah. had a move of almost 20%. Of the August How do you do lows. that? How do you do that on the Bloomberg? Some quick charting on the uh, the really? Stock 600 Bank Index. I'm struggling to understand though how the this uh, chemistry, this interaction. That, that that I don't. But the consolidation among the European banks. I mean, honestly, how is that going to affect some of the valuation here? Is that going to be good? Is that going to be allowed? If it doesn't happen, are you going to see insolvencies? If we do indeed get that consolidation, we've been talking about it for a long, long time, particularly on the periphery, in places like Italy, where there is a serious problem with overbanking and the overbanked. We've been talking about that for years. A lot of people would love to see a resolution. Let's be clear. We tried it in Germany for about five minutes. Deutsche Bank wanted to have a go. Couldn't right. find a dance partner. Commerce Bank, we were talking about finding a dance partner for Commerce Bank for much of the last couple of years too. I mean, BNP Paribas, you get a 5.9% dividend, but really on a total return basis over X number of years, it's gone nowhere. It, you know, and, and that's one of the best, best banks on financial performance in uh, Europe. David Harrow, thank you uh, so much. be a lot of fun. Gregory Zuckerman stopped financial uh, news a number of years ago with the greatest trade ever. He wanted to talk about the frackers. 
And now he's come out with a book with a lot of fancy mathematics on the cover. It's got some partial differentials out here, a little bit of Ryman action uh, going as well. It's all very PhD, which is what you would expect from Jim Simons, of course, of Renaissance, and of course, the mathematics of trying to get it right. Alarian says it is well written. Jim Grant says Zuckerman, of course, has done it again, but far more importantly, a guy named Ed Thorpe said, shut up and read this book. Who is Ed Thorpe and why does he think, uh, Greg Zuckerman, you've pitted out of the park on Jim Simons? So Ed Thorpe is one of the pioneers of quantitative uh, trading, the whole idea of turning decision-making in the markets over to systems. And that's what Jim Simons dominates. That's what he does. That's how he's conquered the market, 66% a year since 1988. And he's sort of the reason why so many on Wall Street, 31% of all trading today is quantitative. People want to be like Jim right. Simons. They all want to be like Jim Simons. The appendix you have, the track record is absolutely extraordinary and unexplainable. <laughs> it's not Monte Carlo. It's not bringing in tons of data, massaging it, getting to an answer, is it? There's something more than just a vanilla Monte Carlo approach, isn't there? It is not vanilla, yes. it's Originally, it's digesting data. Originally, it was just pricing data, and they got it before others. They believed in big data. We call it big data today. They were crunching data. They were cleaning data before anyone even thought of this. We're talking about when Mark Zuckerberg was in grade school in the early 80s, and Jim Simons, who's a scientist, who's a mathematician, one of the greatest geometers of the last 100 years, had this sense that there's structure in the market. There are patterns that investors, average investors, sophisticated, sophisticated investors, just aren't aware of and he set out to find them so this book landed on my desk in the last 24 hours I look at the front page the man who solved the market how jim simons launched the quant revolution i did what tom did looked at the back saw mohammed alarian there called mohammed said to mohammed you've read the book what do you think he said greg's phenomenal ask him how we went about learning the concepts that jim simons uses the math behind all of this because Jim you're like me you're not a mathematician Greg brother you're like me you're not a mathematician where did you go away and learn all of these concepts yeah it was really difficult it was the hardest thing I ever did because I'm not a math guy um, what I did was pick the brains of mathematicians all over the country um, some many of them were just really generous with their time finally even Jim Simons um, worked with me half the time the concepts went over my head I have to turn to other experts and, and mathematicians so people were generous with their time sat down and explained with me quant people because frankly this is the story that they wanted to hear they wanted to understand how Jim Simons and his colleagues, colorful, interesting colleagues, had pulled this thing off. At its most basic core, what's the secret? Well, there are many secrets. Uh, the key, I would argue, is that they shifted from long-term to short-term trading and that they look for patterns. And the lesson here is that human behavior repeats. And they're aware of many more factors. We all talk about factor investing. There are many more factors that, in, that impact investing than you and I are aware of. And they're aware of them more, more than anybody else. When you talk about patterns, are you talking about in terms of when people sell on an intraday basis, or are you talking about over years? I mean, how, what's the time frame here? So the average holding period is about two days. They'll go a little shorter, they'll go a little bit longer. These aren't high frequency flash boy kind of things. It's generally speaking short term patterns, but not excessively short term. And the whole idea behind their genius is that they believe in systems and not stories, meaning that you and I, or maybe I can speak for my 
myself, I get caught up sometimes. You get caught up in an Uber, you get caught up in WeWork, Theranos. And the whole idea is to remove the human emotion from investing and to turn the decision-making over to systems. These are rules-based investors. My favorite page is page 127. Only Greg Zuckerman could get Derman, Mandelbrot, Taleb, Bar Rosenberg, the giant, all on the same page with Ed Thorpe. What kind of mathematics is Professor Simons doing? There's a lot of different math between Mandelbrot, Taleb, who you know everyone knows I'm a huge fan of his work, Bar Rosenberg as well, one of, one of the great giants of this. What flavor of math leads to this mass outperformance over a theta of 48 hours. So what he originally was is a geometer, and he's a groundbreaking mathematician. A lot of his work is still- Out of Stony uh, Brook, Frank. Exactly, developed the department there, and he has still impacted all kinds of areas, physics and others, and he again had- what's the math that makes for this excellence? It's a combination of things, but I I guess to simplify, they seem to look at the market as something of a hidden Markov model, and but it's it's got a above that and beyond that. And to me, it's, it's a combination of different approaches that they blend into one. It's almost a, an engineering approach okay, in some Okay, an way. engineering approach in spherical geometry in the XYZ space, are they in some way going regression to the mean? Mm. I mean, that would be the question. I mean, to some extent, but it's more of a sense of of finding hidden patterns that other people aren't aware of. And that's, they use math for that, but you don't wanna go, it's not all math in, in any way. So Jim Simons arguably solved the market. He certainly made a ton of money from it, but he also transformed it. And I'm wondering what he said about that. So his, it's funny, he's a quant and his, it's all about um, setting human motion aside. And yet the whole story, the Renaissance story is about fighting these emotions. Even they panic, even they get nervous. And there are all kinds of periods, 2007, 2000, even late last year, Jim Simons worth $23 billion. He's the preeminent quant. He panicked last year in his own private in account. What way? He called his, his broker, his, uh, the guy who runs his, his family he's office. He's got a count of Schwab? <laughs> not, not quite, not like I do. Um, he's got a family office. He calls the guy who runs his family office. Late last year, he's on vacation in Beverly Hills. And he says, shouldn't we be buying some protection here? The market's going down. And his his guide, his, his advisor says, well, maybe let's wait a few days. Yeah. But the irony, the rich irony, is that here's the quant. He, he's made his billions. He's changed Wall Street by setting human motion aside. And even he has to fight those emotions. Where's he on long short? I mean, a lot of guys are out there and over three or three, they blow up. You know, they'll do great in the they got a drawdown, it's killing, and they might as well shut down and reset up again on classic long short. What did he say about more traditional alternative investment approaches? I mean, he'll do some of that uh, on his personal account, but that's not what they do. They've got a sharp of about seven. Their whole point this is how they how do it. How do they, they get they, there? They get to us. That's the story. That's the book. But basically, they'll hold about four to 5,000 stocks short four to 5,000 long, and they're looking for relationships among groups of equities. They don't do where is Apple going, where is Google going. They don't even know sometimes the names of the companies. It's, it's, it's early machine learning, so they really yeah, often yeah, don't even know why yeah. their own system is doing what it's doing. Only in hindsight can they figure it out, and there have been panic How times. How do they about, set up stop loss then within such a short theta and with an invisibility of what the issues are? Um, 8,000 stocks one way and the other way. 
how do you stop loss out of that position? Well, there's no one position. So it's, it's a group of relationships. And we're talking, let's say, uh, one group versus another group. One ver- group versus a factor. One group versus an index. Um, so it's, it's complicated, but it's all relationships. And they don't believe that one can. I don't think uh, I've ever seen Zucker, Zuckerman this fired up. This is, it's, this is amazing. Well, you know, I, I got excited about the story. Well, yeah. it, honestly, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal story. I can't wait to dig in a little bit more. Can you solve the did. New York Knicks? Can Jim Simon buy the New York Knicks? It's very and... simple. Just get rid of Dole and start <laughs> over again. <laughs> that one even I can figure out. Yeah, fight human emotion. Honestly, I love, I love that idea. It's all about fighting human emotion, even within the walls of Renaissance Capital, even yes. with Jim Simon. That's the thing that he struggles me. with it. Right. I thought these guys are quants and they set motion aside. That's the whole point. And yet when you dig into the story they panic like is, you and I do they get on each other's nerves and they fight it fight it out is Adam McKay called you yet about doing a movie on this I'm waiting he you're waiting reach by the me. phone yes anytime anywhere the big quant it'll be a great there title. you go there I like go. it yeah congratulations Gregory Gregory Zuckerman the man who solved the market Jim Simons of course with his great philanthropy in New York and just stunning success before you read the book and you must go to the back and look at the appendix which beautifully lays out the outperformance of what Professor Simons uh, is doing. Really love, and I love how you bring all the other great mathematicians struggling with this in. Greg Zuckerman, the man who solved the market. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.